29th Street Convent. Everything's upbeat. Parties. Ball in the park. Nothing. But girls at the dark. We chill. Nobody gets ill in the place. We call the hill, but if you try them, that's when they will get wild. But they don't fight. They kill. Good morning. Welcome to the library with Tim Arnico. Yes, yes, yes. So I just want to start, obviously, from the beginning. Uh, did rhyming come natural to you? I mean, did the art of rhyme, was that a natural thing, or is that something that you've been continuously trying to craft throughout your career? Combination. Uh, definitely came natural, but in order to get, quote-unquote, good or what I would consider elite, you definitely have to work at it. I think uh, 90% of the time, even if you look at somebody like a Michael Jordan, uh, I'm sure some of it is God-given ability, but on another level, you have to work because uh, talent is never going to get it done alone. Have you, so, would you say you've perfected the art of rhyme, or is it you know are you still working on it? Or oh, still working. I mean, I, I've mastered certain levels of it, but there's so many different ways and cadences and flows that can happen. Uh, some of the stuff the newer generation. <clears throat> Uh, there's a drop-off in many ways, but there's also an an upgrade in many ways, just in terms of some of the melodic stuff that they're doing and some of the ways they're bouncing around with words and stretching words. I mean, I, I actually, you know, again, always working in progress, always a work in progress. So as, they, as the time changes and as the styles change, uh, you know, it's always something to remaster. So I enjoy it from that perspective. Do you remember the, the first verse you've ever spit or you ever wrote? Uh, I wouldn't call it a verse, uh, but <laughs> the first extreme simple rhyme, uh, because I first guy I heard was a uh, Lovebug Starsky, and he was talking about uh, his DJ at the time was AJ, or I guess they were working together, and he said, um, you know, and I was I remember saying I'm DJ MoJ on the go and I'm here to rock your stereo. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and there's no J in my name, but I had no idea, you know the real mechanics of what you're supposed to do. So I was just basically doing what I heard. And I actually want to go into, there was one thing about the uh, TV One's unsung uh, that I thought was quite fascinating. Um, was the, just amazed how people are able to just kind of remember everyone's rhyme. Like everyone remembers your rhyme. And, you know, the first time you you, uh, you did the, the speed rap, rapping mm-hmm. uh, or the fast rapping, my fault. And just now you said you just remember that rhyme. How does that happen? Like, what is it about a verse that kind of sticks in your mind for this I long? I think it's, uh, and that's what I meant when I said the way things evolve, uh, you know, between inertia and entropy, some things drop off, but some things uh, accent- uh, accelerate. Uh, what I think happened at that time is I basically changed or sped up the frequency that we were kind of rhyming on. And, uh, you know, they didn't call it flow. I think that was really invented when Rakim came into the equation. Mm-hmm. But the cadence at the time and how you rhymed, it was It was real simple and a simple flow. That, 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 it was really kind of uh, more simplistic. And by me uh, just taking it up a notch and it stayed in you. It's almost like when you listen to an old record from um, Natalie Cole. Loving and pleasing and hugging and teasing and kissing and leaving and digging forever. When you do things that rapid fire like that, uh, many times, especially if there's melody on it, it sticks with people a lot because it's almost like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. You, know, you kind of want to figure out what they're saying, so you're focusing on it a lot more. Do you, um, with, with, with kind of using that uh, example, do you think maybe to more of today's rap is kind of, I guess, unforgettable? Uh, 
no, not really. I mean, 50-50. Mm. Some of it is unforgettable, and some of it is really forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to. One one of the stories I really liked in uh, the TV ones unsung um, was back in 1981 when you had your your first battle with uh, Busy B in Harlem World. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the audience, you know, for the people that haven't seen Unsung, uh, can you just kind of set the set the set 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 the scene for that night? Uh, basically, at this time, and uh, I will, I have to say that Unsung uh, did a very good surface job, mm-hmm. and I know they have 45 minutes to tell a story, uh, but just the angles that they chose to use and some of the stuff that they chose to leave out, to me, just didn't do real justice oh, to a tone that I would have liked set, to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, but that was basically um, a time period where. My group, Treacherous Three, we had basically the number one record of that year, 1981. It was Feel the Heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way it was going at that time is once you made a record and once you had a record that was a hit, you were separated from the crowd in terms of your quote-unquote status. So I was viewed as one of the elite status MCs. Not only that, also very well known for being a lyricist. And that stuff started happening because most MCs at the time were party MCs, but each group, and, and there were mostly groups as opposed to soloists, so each group had, you know, the person or a couple of people in their group that everybody would consider lyricists, you know, in Furious Five, it would be Melly Mel and, say, Raheem. If you went to uh, Cold Crush, you would go to Grandmaster Kaz and, and uh, maybe JDL, and if you went to uh, Funky Four at the time when they changed the group to Funky Four Plus One, it was uh, Jazzy Jeff and Rodney C. So... Every group had, you know, their quote-unquote lyricist in the equation, and I was viewed as that uh, in my group uh, with Special K. So it really was just about me hosting the event because there was no way I was supposed to be in a contest at that point. Mm. And literally just because the heckler in the crowd when Busy B was doing a shtick, a heckler was basically saying, you couldn't beat Mo D, uh, you know, and Busy B just kept going, I don't care who it is, I'm knocking out all bums, and... For me, uh, like I said, my my ego was what was really driving the car at that time. So I just couldn't believe that he didn't acknowledge that he wouldn't beat me in a battle or couldn't beat me in a battle. And I said, uh, well, I went to Charlie Rock and Thunder Sam, the guys that were running the Harlem World at the time, and told them, uh, you know, put me in. I'm getting. I mean, I actually went to Sam. I said, put me in. I'm getting the battle. And he said, really? I said, yeah. And then make sure you put me on after Busy B. Oh, interesting. And I had enough leverage to do that because my thing is I wanted to get on right after him so people understood the difference. Because it's like, for me, it's like this is not a contest. This is going to be between me and you since you said you would beat me. Now, hold on, busy B. I don't mean to be bold, but put that ball did and ball bullshit on hold. We're going to get right down to the nitty grit. Going to tell you a little something why you ain't shit. And it ain't an shot that you don't hug. You even bitch your name from the love bug. And I don't fight a nigga's name. The one thing that is kind of talked about, I've talked about in Unsung, is that you, you guys talk about how that night changed kind of the way we hear the freestyle battle today. Right. So I was just wondering if you could kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, explain that. Well, because most times when people battled, they didn't really talk about anybody. They basically said, "I'm the best, and I'm the greatest, and we'll beat anybody in the in the place." And everybody did their version of, "I'm the best." Uh, it wasn't until that time where people would say, "You have this, or you wear that, or you do this, or you look like that, or this is what your rhyme style is like." It was the beginning of quote unquote where dissing and diss records and diss raps came from because very few people would even do that. I mean, and if they did, it would be kind of like they wouldn't go in on someone 
uh, to that degree where I talked about buying rhymes from Spoonie and, you know, how simple a rhyme was and, you know, putting your style on hold and all of the stuff that I was doing. They just weren't doing it at that level before. And I guess because if you really think about it, uh, it could have been kind of perilous because, you know, you're coming out of the hip-hop is basically shutting down the gang violence in the Bronx, but it doesn't mean that that energy is not still there. So, you know, because a lot of these guys came from gangs and, you know, Zulu Nation kind of united it and broke it down, really dismantled gang violence, which is one of the unsung, true unsung stories of hip-hop, dismantling gang violence in the South Bronx. And all, basically all in New York for that much, for that mm-hmm. matter, for, the, for that time period. Um, you couldn't really just talk about somebody like that and not expect something to happen, probably. So that might have something to do with it also. All right. I, I want to. I'm going to jump around a little bit I'm, and let's jump to your second album, um, where you you know how you like me now. And I, I know you've you've probably talked you know immensely about your battle with LL. So I don't really want to kind of go into that. Um, what I do want to do is like I want to ask you as hip hop has become more popular over the decades. It seems like battling um, is becoming more and more a kind of a commercial endeavor by artists, mm-hmm. uh, kind of wishing that they will. Um, kind of big, you know up their profiles in the public did you know at the time that you and ll were going back and forth that this was actually going kind of well one this would make a difference but two this was actually helping your profile um no because that wasn't even a thought process though the biggest thing that's that's overstated and completely remissed is how much the battle was focused on quote-unquote or his success, I think the the or the success that came from the battle, the main impetus of the battle. It, it's just I make it. It's analogous to what happened in the East Coast West Coast thing. Mm. The East Coast West Coast battle or or conflict wasn't about style as much as the media portrayed it as style. The ba- the battle basically was in 1989, which is what I call the turning point, and the turning point at the end the the, the ending of the golden age of hip hop, in my opinion, mm. is. Chuck D, Public Enemy has Fight the Power, KRS-One has You Must Learn, and I, Kumo D, had uh, Knowledge is King. Right. We were absolutely pushing hip-hop into a conscious space, a, a, a particularly pro-black conscious space, and it just felt like mainstream America and mainstream radio didn't really like the momentum that that movement was starting to get. And if you remember clearly, and I say this to people so many times, they had a very, very hard time getting rap records on the radio at the time. So you go from not playing the most conscious rap in 1989 to within three years playing what you call gangster rap and just beeping the curses out. So if you understood the climate of radio back then, uh, let's just say Payola was at an extremely loose and open kind of forum format, so there's nothing on the radio that wasn't paid for. So who's paying to get this on the radio, and why is radio not resisting playing this when they were resisting playing the conscious rap? When that came out, uh, you know, N.W.A. had already been out in 1988. They came in, you know, the day they released. They came out number two behind Guns N' Roses, first day of sound scan, June of 89, I mean, 88. So, you know, things like that I remember very vividly. And they were hot without radio play. So the fact that radio started playing gangster and beeping the curses out is what we were talking about. And because they were on the West Coast, they kind of took the triangulation out of it and made it about us versus them versus their style when we were just talking about the consciousness versus playing the, the gangster rap. And we were kind of going at radio and mainstream media 
but they turned it into us not liking them, and that really wasn't the case. Same thing with the LL situation. For me, the, the basis of that battle was he was saying he was the best, and everybody said, oh, Mo was mad because he said he was the best. It's like, no, everybody said they were the best. That wasn't a real issue. Right. I mean, and people after him said they were the best. You know, Rakim came, and Kane came, and Cool G Rap and KRS-One. is like, it's kind of what you did if you were a lyricist. There was no problem with that. The biggest issue for me was in the height of the crack era in 1987, which, by the way, he was 19, uh, he dropped their album called I'm Bad, and he basically said in one of his lyrics, I'm only 18, making more than your pops. And I thought, you know, for little boys that idolize and worship you and want to be you and women that lust you and kind of want to be with you, it's so counterproductive to say you're worth more than their fathers because you're making more money or put their fathers in a bad light because you're making more money than them at 18. Simultaneously on the same album, he made uh, reference to uh, you're just a worker boy, you're pushing a broom, and don't you know you're just a worker and your boss is my man. For those in the know, understood that he was basically saying he hung out with hustlers and the guys that were workers were peons, co-signing the hustle crack era. And then part two, for those that didn't understand, when he said you're just a worker boy, you're pushing a broom, at red like you were saying working was whack or working wasn't cool. So I just thought that that was extremely irresponsible, and I was basically saying if you're going to say you're the best, especially if you're the best in history, you have to upgrade your content, especially in this climate. That's kind of the genesis of the battle. Was there ever, um, I guess, out of the media spotlight, was there ever, a, I guess, a conversation that all, this ra- all, all MCs had together about, like, I mean, like, did you ever say, this is the issue right now? You know, I did why- tons and tons and tons of interviews, uh, had conversations with people, and it just felt like, and this is kind of my first introduction to, which I kind of played... This kind of worked against me in many ways, but I just had to take the good with the bad. It was my one big uh, uh, drawback in terms of not having uh, a publicist. I had a a publicist at Jive Records, uh, Dwayne Taylor, but he used to be mad because I would very rarely want to do interviews and things of that nature. Uh, You know, write on magazines and stuff like that would come through, but I really didn't do a lot of them because it always felt like the media always wanted to go for the fluff. And no matter how many times I talked about that, it just felt like that didn't sell papers, it didn't sell records, so they used the titillation thing, and it always felt like they go for the lowest common denominator, and the superficial, sensational side sold more. So it was much better to focus on the ego as opposed to the heart of the matter. Can 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 hip hop now? Can hip hop go back to what you've kind of always hoped it would do? I mean, with all the power that it has. I mean, you know, it's it's the number one selling art form or mu- music in the states. It's huge, you know, internationally. Is there a movement to get back to? I mean, the roots of what it, what's happening, or is it is it always going to be like this kind of bling bling gangster gangster mentality? I don't think it'll always be that. I think it'll organically change. But I do think that there are quote unquote powers that be, and I don't mean it in this big wicked big conspiracy theme. But I think. Playing to the lowest common denominator when it comes to entertainment, whether it's television or radio, and, and sometimes film, but definitely television and radio, reality TV, and and even the art form of hip hop in particular, it's fast money, fast food. The people that are in charge of the uh, distribution of the entertainment or making the most money off of it don't really have a vested interest in anything other than making money. So the reason you put certain reality TV shows on is because the train wreck effect is what you're guaranteeing. It's not 
really about learning anything or moving the culture forward. It's literally about just making money on that version of the culture. It's kind of like what Jerry Springer did back in the day. Right. It's just basically that kind of mentality is what works hand-in-hand hand with the artist. So it's not to say that the artists don't have a right to say what they want to say or do what they want to do, but, you know, if something's not popular, the artist will also fall suit, follow suit. If you knew that you couldn't get a record on the radio saying some of the things you said, then you wouldn't say them because your objective is also to make money and try to be profitable. So, you know, it's the downside of capitalism when you play to the lowest common denominator, and nobody's trying to set anybody up to be... Uh, you know, have any longevity. So what you have is a situation where even the guys doing it are trying to get as much money as they can because it's like this may not last and probably won't based on how the industry goes. But it seems like, I mean, it seems like you were able to, I mean, it seems like your first album, Kumo D, um, you described the song Go See the Doctor as something that you lyrically compromised yourself. Mm-hmm. You say, I went from fifth gear to first gear. Right. So you to get that, it seems like it sounds like, I guess, what we consider a, a quote-unquote pop tune on, right. or a radio-friendly tune on the radio. But but you but you do talk about, on Go See the Doctor, you talk about venereal disease. Um, you know, you go through, you, you actually have a lot of kind of socially conscious songs on this album. Is that a possibility now to kind of do a quote-unquote poppy song, but as a kind of a socially conscious song? Absolutely. And I just think it's going to be on the artist to be able to find the creative ways to do that. But just like throughout the history of time, you know, even in the 70s, which I call the greatest uh, music decade that I experienced in my lifetime, um, you know, the diversity was great. But, you know, Stevie Wonder and Earth and Fire, you know, far and few between. It wasn't like everybody was in that space. And I think... Uh, most people, you, you're going to get whatever you got based on whatever the people are working with. So I don't know how many people, forget about just rappers or MCs, I don't know how many people are really, really of consciousness or of a conscious state of mind that really, really want to upgrade the society. I think a lot of people literally are being conditioned to just make as much money as they can and try to live a better life or get out of the neighborhoods that they're in. I mean, poverty is traumatizing for the most part, and since most of hip-hop comes from that uh, that area, uh, that demographic, I should say, the poverty side of the equation, uh, it just creates a zone where basically the focus is almost like meditation on money. Mm. When How did you become, I mean, what was it about your growing up or your upbringing that you, kinda, you just became a really conscious MC? Uh, my idols were Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, and Bruce Lee. Oh. So just the thought process and the philosophical uh, aspect of those three, that archetype, that's just always what turned me on, where some people you could hear and you could feel people, I don't want to hear all of that because a lot of people, you know, again, I don't want to, I can't give accurate percentages because, you know, I, I damn sure don't know what the pulse of the whole world is, but I do know for the environments that I was in and for the time period that I came up in, there was a segment of people that enjoyed the Black Panthers and enjoyed the Malcolm X and the whole, you know, Black Power Revolution stick together, say a lot on Black and I'm Proud James Brown thing. But there were a lot of people on the other side that loved the pimp and the player and the hustler. Mm. So Superfly was as relevant as Malcolm X. So it just gets to a space where that divide, that, that conflict or that divide is always in the quote-unquote ghetto. And it's just a matter of which one works, which one sells the most, and how many more people does it titillate. Speaking about your childhood, I want to go back to in uh, TV One's Unsung, you you know talk about growing up with two parents that were verbally and sometimes physically abusive to each other. 
how did you personally just how did you cope with that in your personal life but also as well as your art form well for me the uh, the personal life was again it, it was the beginning of the heightening of my critical thinking because it's kind of why I, I put such an onus even in all of my relationships uh, and my friendships even um, the onus is on communication if you can't communicate you're setting yourself up for either some kind of violent outbreak, verbal abuse, if not physical, you're setting yourself up for breakdowns of communication that the breakdown of communication sets you up for really, really inoperative kind of uh, uh, ways of resolving conflicts. And I think that's part of the equation in, in any kind of hood life. If you can master conflict resolution, then you can basically set yourself up to have a better chance to, to better yourself. And one of those things I think that I mean you you kind of make clear is you make clear is that you have a, a kind of a no tolerance drug policy. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I also thought that that that's that's part and parcel to the no communication because right. if you're not at your sharpest mentally, and I always saw drugs and alcohol very clearly as whatever it is that you're getting in what's supposed to be feeling good, you're trading off in terms of what your actual mental acumen is at this point. You're mm-hmm. not at your sharpest level when you're high or drunk, and then you're going to try to communicate. So it's not, to me, it's like it was no wonder you would break down. I used to always say, even like going to old school hip-hop jams or whatever, it's like, okay, so you have poor, violent, sexual, sexually charged energy in a space with people, and you're going to add alcohol and drugs. I'm surprised nothing happens when it doesn't happen. Like when people fight or something happens, it's like, well, that seems par for the course because you can't have all of that volatility in the equation and then intoxicate it. So uh, I just always saw it as a drawback, you know, and so many people really, really are conditioned to believe that they can't have a good time without it. Mm. I just didn't understand how it became a part of the elixir into the equation when it kind of, you know, certain people are less tolerant when they're drunk. Certain people may be more easygoing. Certain people are, you know, a lot more aggressive when they're high, and some people aren't. It's like, why are you adding something to alter your state of being, your state of mind, when, you know, all these other pressures are already there? So for me, that's what, you know, uh, it, uh, just again, the critical thinking that came in very early, I just thought it as a bad piece to the equation and a bad mix. And, you know, even having conversations, if you had a conversation with a parent or an aunt or a family member when they weren't drunk, it was one level of communication. If you had a conversation with them when they were higher drunk, totally, totally, sometimes even incoherent. Sometimes you just, you know, you can get away with murder. Like that, that was one of the things I saw a lot of my friends do because my parents weren't the only ones I saw, you know, when parents got drunk. You could kind of con your mother a little easier because she wasn't as sharp, you know, and it's like, it just didn't ever seem to end up in anything good from what I saw coming up. How, and, and going into your relationship with um, your two, you know, two of your group members uh, from Treasures 3, L.A. Sunshine and Special K, um, I interviewed L.A. a while back on his book, and you know, he made it. He in his book, he's clear that he was, and he, he he's been battling. He, he was battling a drug addiction for quite a while, and he and he purposely needed wanted to hide it from you. Um, because he knew your your stance on it. Um, how did when you found out that they were doing drugs? I mean, how did that kind of alter your relationship with them? Um, it definitely, as as easily said in the in the piece, it it just created distance because for me, it's a common. It's so many other layers that come with the quote unquote getting high or the getting drunk. First of all, 
it's you're not at your A game, which is already frustrating. Second, that means you have some on you, and I don't know in what quantities you have on you, which means we're now vulnerable to what I call police brutality or just police assault. So when they come and what used to happen constantly in the hood, is cops could just roll up on your block at any day if they felt like it and say, get out of here, whatever, or pull you over or pull you, you know, off a bench and search you and see if you had anything, throw you in a car or the paddy wagon back in those days. So I just didn't like the fact that the officers could have the upper hand just because you guys had stuff on you. The third tier is the circle of friends that also get high and smoke or sell drugs or drink. That's now a part of my equation when it wouldn't be a part of my equation. They have no reason to talk to me, no reason to really be around me, other than the fact that we all may live in the same neighborhoods or travel in the same neighborhoods. But to really, really be in my circle, I just never really had it in the circle. But now you guys have brought that into the circle. So that's another layer. What brings that into the circle now is like, now I don't know what kind of conflicts these drug dealers have with whatever drug dealers and who shot who or who did what with whoever. So now their conflicts, we're now vulnerable to those conflicts because they are now in the circle that they wouldn't be in. So it just, the ripple effect was just too far. So it created a space in me where I had to create a lot more distance because I just didn't know all the stuff that can potentially come with that was way too risky for me to put myself in. And I don't have a docile personality. There's no back down in me whatsoever. And, you know, as it was going into from the 70s into the 80s, the 80s got out of control with the crack situation mm -hmm. because of the guns. But, you know, I was very, very well known for being able to handle myself with, with my fists. Uh, but then it got to a space where nobody's fighting with their fists anymore. Right, right. So now this has gone into peril. So I'm like, uh, the computer did for the nerd what the gun did for the punk. So it was an instant upgrade. How, how did you? How did I mean? How did you and uh, you, Alex Sunshine and Special Gay, kind of mend that relationship? Oh, we were never uh, not friends. We were never not cool. It's just that I just didn't do a lot of hanging out. We used to always uh, spend a lot of time at LA's house. That was where we basically kind of bonded uh, at Easy Lee's house. We did most of our practicing or whatever. So those are the two uh, houses that we kind of hung in, apartments, I should say. And once I found out about the drug use and then the extension of it, uh, extents of it, which the biggest part of Unsung that uh, really let me down was they didn't even talk about me going to college and didn't talk about me graduating from college. Right. And the thing that is totally missed in that whole piece is I wasn't just trying to make music because I wasn't going to quit while they were getting high and doing drugs or whatever. The thing was, I went away to college while that was happening. So I'm away for long, long chunks, uh, you know, two semesters. Come back for a week for intercession, come back for a week for spring break, and I'm away most of the year. So what was happening was the reason that I didn't know how much of that was going on is I'm not around those guys every day. So once I start to see what's happening, I'm spending way more time. I went to college at Old Westbury. It was only 45 minutes away from the city, but it was still like, you know, going away and living on campus, and I'm staying away and staying out of the fray. So even my strategy of how to avoid those pitfalls was totally left out of the equation on top of the fact that, their position was, well, we're not making money, I'm depressed. My position was, well, if it doesn't make money, I'm going to go to school just in case. So that was the whole point. I'm, and I'd, the biggest letdown for me in the whole piece is the fact that they didn't mention that not only did I go to school, go to college, and get a degree, but it was part of the strategy uh, to combine with the zero tolerance to just stay away from and stay above the fray as opposed to just, oh, he didn't give up on music, and he just they, they stopped and he kept going. It's right. like... Yeah, but how did I keep going? 
This actually was one of my questions about your degree. Um, was the degree just because just you knew the importance of having a fallback? Uh, not really. It was a combination of things. It was one, um, I really, really don't believe in giving up. Uh, so uh, in high school, we got into a big thing with a guidance counselor, and you know, it, it was a situation where it's like, okay, either you're going to drop out and follow you know, the course of what happens in dropping out, or you're going to take a GED and go to college, which was actually what I did and what Special K did. Well, Special K and L.A. actually took GEDs also. But um, for me, it was like I have to go to college. I have to get a degree. I have to actually finish school because the degree is part of the strategy or part of a necessary piece of the strategy of, again, nobody could say in 1981 or 82 that hip-hop was going to be any kind of career. Mm. You could have a career in it. So for me, it was just like, what else am I going to do? So I definitely would have wound up going to film school or something like that because uh, after Westbury, luckily, uh, the, the, or should I say, a state would have it, the music stuff really started clicking for me as a soloist. But uh, my next phase is going to be I was going to go to NYU and I was going to, uh, you know, p- apply and try to go to film school or do something in the arts because I always knew I wanted to do something within the creative side of the equation. So, you know, just that kind of planning and that kind of thinking was totally left on the cutting room floor. And I, I, before we move on to your solo career, I actually, was there anything that, looking back on it, or actually during, was there anything you wish that uh, Treasures 3 as a group accomplished? Uh, I truthfully just wish that there were no drugs and alcohol in the equation and we could have stayed the course that we would have because I think... Uh, you know, not that I have any regrets in the solo career, but I think we might have done what Wu-Tang did later. You know, we mm. might have been a group that also had three solo careers simultaneously. So, so the solo career for you was just, I mean, it was, no matter what, was gonna, it was an, an inevitable thing, right? Uh, not necessarily. I just think that it was, a, it was cause and effect. And then once the effect took over, I understood the gift and the need for it, so to speak. Because it... it freed me to really, really do just the kind of music I want. And Special K, who's also an extremely creative guy, likes, you know, a certain style of music. And we always, we didn't always see eye to eye. So coming up to with an agreement for a record that we would do, uh, you know, most of the times two people would be happy and then not one or something to that effect or whatever. So I think with moving on and being able to be successful as a group would have opened up those avenues so that everybody could take the quote-unquote shot that they wanted to take as a solo or whatever, and I think it would have been, again, Velvet DeVoe did it with New Edition, just those kinds of things we would have definitely done, and I thought it would have been healthy to be able to do that and uh, come back and do whatever you want together whenever you need to based on what you want to do and, and just have a healthier frame of mind about it. What was the was the transition going from so, uh, group to solo, was that a tough transition, or was it kind of natural for you? or uh, It was natural... Uh, in the sense that I was always extremely confident uh, with my craft, so to speak. But the main thing that was missed is being on stage by myself without the guys to go back and forth off of. Mm. That was an adjustment that had to be made, you know, just in terms of the live performance. But in terms of doing records, it was almost like freeing because it's like, wow, I get to rhyme longer because the way the group dynamic did, you didn't really get a chance to go as far as you could go as a solo, uh, just in terms of how much you wanted to say or whatever you wanted to say with the rhymes and things of that nature. What's the difference between bouncing, I guess, bouncing off ideas of, uh, from fellow group members to bouncing off ideas from a producer? Uh, or the main difference? 
The main difference is, well, stages. At one stage, the producer is just listening. Once the producer's got momentum, like in the 90s, it got to a space where the producer almost became dominant because he's now feeding the guy, the, 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 he's feeding him the music, and he's also sometimes feeding ideas, which I didn't really have to go through because most of my success was uh, 80s. And by the time it got to the 90s and I started seeing what was happening, um, you know, the, the thing that happened, and again, the timing of it is by the 90s, you have legitimately uh, a legitimate argument to say that there's a good chance that this could be on the radio because they're not as backlash, no playing radio, no radio play stuff as they were in the 80s. And because of that, you now have to be focused on making something that, you know, radio will play because that was the thing. Even I just had this conversation with uh, my old manager just a couple of weeks ago. I was like, hey, you're going to give me something for the radio. And I had to catch myself because it was almost quickly enraging and frustrating. It's like, wow, first thing out of the gate. And, you know, I'm just recording. I'm back in the studio. I'm putting this album together. And we're already starting to give me something to take to radio combo. Do you, do you think you're going to have to, uh, just knowing the way the industry works now, do you think you're going to have to um, kind of compromise like you did for your first album? Um, for me, it wouldn't be compromise. It would be more about balance because... The thing that, and this is the, the most frustrating thing about all of this when you look from the historical arc, is the guys that did the best, and I'm talking Jay-Z, the Kanye West of the world for this era, uh, Little Wayne, and you keep going back throughout history and seeing the guys that did the best, if you go puffy with Big E, they absolutely did what they wanted to do and went against the grain of whatever the quote-unquote radio par for the course thing was, radio standard was at the time, and because of their artistry and then the understanding of the payola aspect at that time, um, they basically did what they wanted and made the industry come around to them. Mm. Uh, you know, and that's, the, that's something to be said. If, you, if there's nothing else to be said about Gangster, it's like you, they did what they did. Of course, you know, good and well, they weren't going for radio. And then because of them doing what they did and the fanfare that it created, they brought radio around and made the industry come around to them. And then they became the standard, which in many ways you could say might have lowered the standard in terms of what the radio would play, but it still worked in the sense that it, it gave a voice to a lot of uh, hip-hop artists that would have seen the light of day in the 80s. You're, you're, the, the single, I go to, you know, the second single, I Go to Work, um, off your album, Knowledge is King, is kind of reviewed as like one of the most, you know, pinnacle points of your career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what the critics say. So I actually want to give you the opportunity. What do you think is your one your best album, and two, what is your best song? Easily, best album is Knowledge Is King. I still think uh, Pound for Pound the best song is Wild Wild West because it crossed so many uh, barriers. It had a sprinkle of social content in there, social commentary and social content, uh, just in terms of you know fighting with our hands and putting the guns down. It had melody, it had a hook, it had pop appeal, it had radio appeal, it had club appeal, and in many places it had street appeal. Not everywhere, but it had a lot of street appeal in many places. So that was the quote-unquote sweet spot record. Uh, but the album, Pound for Pound, is definitely Knowledge is King because it was the first time I felt extremely comfortable because I just had platinum success with the Knowledge is King and How You Like Me Now album, I should say. I mean, with the... Wild Wild West on the How You Like Me Now album, and How You Like Me Now basically setting that, that bar kind of high. Uh, it just gave me the ability, 
which is the unfortunate frustration in the industry is until you have success, you almost have no freedom. And then when you have success, then you're almost locked into the success you had because now they're looking for something similar to what you had before. So it becomes this weird kind of back-and-forth grind and struggle. But Knowledge is King is the very first time that I felt comfortable enough and confident enough to do what I wanted to do without worrying about whether radio was going to play it or not. And I want to go to my one of my personal favorite uh, this verses of all time uh, was on the 1988 song, Self-Destruction. As someone who remembers that song from, like, fourth grade on... Um, what was the, like, what was the inspiration behind the verse, and was it tough to write? Not even close. It was a, uh, it was a. Uh, I, I want to say like simple in terms of no thought, but because of the time, uh, and that's what I meant by vibration and consciousness. When it's at that frequency, it's I'm most comfortable. So any kind of stop the violence, uh, KRS was very very big in doing the stop the violence and heal and human education against lies. You know those kinds of movements. I love that kind of stuff. Like, that's really, really, you know, again, if I come from Malcolm and Muhammad Ali and, and Bruce Lee, uh, and, you know, of course, Bruce Lee, if anybody knows, you know, studied Gandhi, and I'm named after Mahatma Gandhi, uh, just that whole energy, for me, is always the most comfortable space to write in. It's just that you don't get to write comfortably in that space because you're getting told, from everybody in your circle and everybody near the, the build, oh, this is preachy, or nobody wants to hear that. Like, they always take the position that this stuff isn't going to be wanted or isn't going to be welcome. So the fact that it was going to be like a hip-hop version of We Are the World, I was extremely titillated, and I basically didn't have a problem writing because it's the zone that I actually live in, the zone that I want to be in. It's a stretch when I have to go into the other space, but it's no stretch at all when you're in the consciousness, in the conscious space. Could there be a? You think there's room, or do you think we need a? a I guess like a self-destruction too. Uh, I would love that. We tried to do that when Tupac and Biggie died. Uh, we tried to do a self-destruction too, but again, the nature of the business at that time was they wanted Puffy to produce, and how much was it going to cost? And they only wanted a certain kind of star or celebrity on the on the record. They didn't care what anybody really had to say. They just wanted the names and the faces. And then it's like, well, the hypocrisy of you can't use this person if their whole arsenal or their repertoire is talking about killing, then how can you not have them on the record talking about not killing? So they ran into a wall at that time because they wanted a lot of the quote-unquote gangster artists on the record, but it was like, but what are they going to actually say? And if they're going to say something that goes against that, it doesn't really make sense, and you know now they lose credibility as being the quote-unquote gangster that they've been promoting all this time. So it wound up crashing because they didn't have the stick or the integrity to just use the older artists and have it like a cry, you know. And it wasn't; it didn't have to only be older artists. You could have older artists mixed with some of the R&B acts and singing or whatever for a singing hook. You could have done tons of creative things to make that project go, but they were very, very much into the star. Sh- or a star-studded kind of aspect of the record as opposed to the heart and the integrity of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and going back to Self-Destruction, two of those, two, two of the MCs that you worked with on Self-Destruction, KRS-One and Chuck D, mm-hmm. you also worked with on uh, your 1991 album. 
funky funky wisdom uh, in Rise and Shine. Yeah, make no mistake, we don't shake or stutter. So he the word of the buffers. Who makes a boy into a man? It's the job of another man who knows his role as a father. He fathers to give his son his soul to pass it on to never flunk. Look, Papa, don't raise no punks. Got to make it known in the pass it down. So can you just tell the audience what that what, what was it like in the studio when you guys were recording that song? First of all, I, well, I waited because we weren't all of there together. Uh, Chuck D came by at probably like midnight, and KRS came by at like 2 in the morning uh, and, and put their verses down. And I basically wanted to do that because I've always felt that, especially when you have that level of consciousness, KRS-One is just conscious mind is incredible. Chuck D goes without saying. And... Uh, I used to call it the Leo connection because all of us are Leos. And I said, nice. you know, if we can put this energy out, you know, you touch on each of the audiences because I had more of a kind of older R&B hip-hop audience. KRS absolutely had the streets. And Chuck D had all of the hip-hop art audience from, I mean, he crossed lines from white to black, political realms. He, he just crossed in places that hip-hop wasn't really going or trekking based on what his energy and what Public Enemy represented. And I thought that putting the three of us together was a great way to maximize the market uh, while maximizing and matching a certain level of consciousness. So, uh, and again, I, I, you know, it's still something I would do to this day uh, comfortably is uh, work with KRS and, and Chuck D. And a couple of, I actually want to go back to uh, the first question. One of the first questions I asked you about battling. Is there an MC today that you would like to have a battle with? Uh, not particularly. Okay, nothing. I mean, just because, for me, the battle has to be about something. It, I never, and this is the biggest, most remiss part of the equation, again, that Unsung didn't put in, I never looked at battle as fun. Mm. Like, I don't see it as fun. I, I take it extremely seriously, and because I'm battling either about something, which is why I didn't feel good after the Busy Bee battle, because it wasn't about anything, it was just ego. The LL thing, it was really about this kind of uh, lyrical content can't be co-signed. You know, you're just a worker boy, you're pushing a broom, and, you know, your boss is my man, and I'm only 18 making more to your pops. So it was more about that than anything else. And everybody chimed in on what they thought it was about and what their opinion was. And uh, even Curtis Blow at one point said, oh, Moji's being an opportunist because LL's hot and he's just trying to get his name. Like, everybody had a, a spin on it that had nothing to do with what I had anything that was driving and driven in me and it's easy to be cynical you know it's almost like when you hear an nba player says oh it wasn't about the money everybody's like, sure <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's right. always about the money <laughs> because no one ever believes that anybody has any heart everybody believes that everybody's materialistic everybody believes that everybody's going for the money or everybody believes that everybody wants to shine or they want the popularity so no one believes that there's ever any integrity in it so it's amazing that, and that's, that's why I wasn't really surprised. I said, no matter how many interviews I do, and I tell the stories like, yeah, yeah, right, you were just jealous because, or you didn't like it because, or you, your ego was this way. And I, so they, they're telling you a story for you, even though they ask you the question. It, it's like asking you a question but already having their answer made up, and it's almost like you're validating their answer as opposed to them actually getting your answer. But it, it also seems like a, I mean a good free. I feel like a good battle. What I mean, the one thing, or well, one of the things, of many things, a good battle does. It actually kind of highlights the the wordplay, the kind of the the creativity, um, just of the MC himself. Um, right. I, like I, I feel like that would just listening to it. 
not like who not not picking a side like who you know did Ella win and Mo you know did Mo win whatever. It just as a as a fan, it's just listening to. Wow, he. I mean, he did just what? What did he just say? Like he did that? That's pretty. How do you bend those two words together? Stuff like that. So just as a fan, I think it's more for me. It's more about kind of yeah, like I said, like the wordplay and kind of the the technique behind the uh, the battle, I guess. For me, like I said, it's it's. I have to either not like you or not like something you say or not like something you're about, um, and then I have to really, really want to do that based on that because there's tons of records I didn't like or tons of lines and stuff that I've heard over the years that I might not have liked or whatever, but I had nothing against those artists. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that has always driven me crazy, to be cast as, or typecast as, I should say, as the, the battle MC and you know, for the reasons that hip-hop thinks battle is about, or the way they tell you hip-hop's battle, battle is about, and that's not my perspective whatsoever. Oh, like, like I said, again, battle just isn't fun for me. What, I guess, one of, one of, kind of one of the questions uh, that I would, really love to hear the answer for is um if you if your top five albums of all time if you had to like throw away all your music but only keep five uh which ones would they be oh you mean my albums or just albums or albums uh whichever ones you want i mean i guess albums in general oh see okay i saw that question and didn't know which way it was oh sorry about that well if it was my records because i just thought about five records or whatever i said (laughs) i would keep rappers uh new rap language because it was the first one we did and it was swoonie g and the treacherous three the whole crew on there I would keep Body Rock and Heartbeat from The Treacherous Three, and I would keep uh, How You Like Me Now and Wild Wild West from, from my cool Modi thing. Oh, Those nice. would be my five in that. But if you're talking about just albums of all time, um, I have to go Stevie Wonder Songs in the Key of Life. Nice. Uh, I have to go Earth, Wind, and Fire All in All. I have to go Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. Uh, that's three. That's an amazing album. Uh, and I'm just trying to think of what I what records could I not do out, do away with. So that's three, and I'm trying not double up on artists because I could double up on either of those and be done. <laughs> so nice. Even those artists. I mean, I can get another because I can go that's the way of the world for Earth and Fire. Truthfully, uh, that's four. <laughs> and I could go Hotter Than July with Steven, but I'm not going to do that. That's four. I'll say a fifth because I have to get my other favorite artists in there. I would have to do um um. Prince, Purple Rain. So, oh, of course. Yeah. Here it is. That's it. That's my five. Yeah, I, I got to do two Earth and Fire in there. So you got All in All, That's the Way of the World, uh, Off the Wall, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonders, Songs in the Key of Life, and uh, Prince's Purple Rain. Those are five albums I absolutely have to have in the equation. So no, so, so no hip-hop albums? Uh, albums, no. Oh, I love it. Again, a close six is Public Enemies Nation of Millions oh, uh, holds back. That's uh, that's six. So if you give me ten, that's the first one in the ten. <laughs> nice. But I can't, I cannot, I love, of course, Public Enemy, all-time favorite group. Uh, and I love, love Nation of Millions without question. So if I can't do 5A and 5A, and like I said, and I had to double up on Earth, Wind, and Fire because I absolutely have to have uh, That's the Way of the World. That that album is uh, it kind of starts my quote unquote upgrade of my musical IQ, and Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life is still pound for pound the best album I've heard all time, and then you know again Michael Jackson's off the wall, you could just stop at don't stop till you get enough and and uh, rock with you and I almost don't need anything else and of course there's still more on that album but that there's, that was just incredible. There's so many times I actually can't get past don't stop till you get enough. 
<laughs> I just keep rewinding it back and forth. Right, and I'll do that until I miss it, and it gets to, and I'm done. So I can't stop. Uh, once Rock with you is playing, I can't stop. Oh no, it, so. that's true. <laughs> so I know, I know, I know your career is obviously still going. Uh, but so far, what 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 has been the highlight of your career? Working with Quincy Jones back on the block, easily. An everlasting omnipresence is my present state of being, seeing the unpleasant sight of righteous souls live like peasants. The mind stunts growth and adolescence. My insight enables me to enlighten the weakest of minds, and I put them in flight as I transcend, ascend, or descend, recreate, reincarnate, and reset. The powerful spirits of our ancestors for those that don't know how God blessed us because man messed up the media, dressed up lies, perpetrated the truth, and it left us confused. But I've seen it all before. Pound for pound, uh, the most enthralling, thrilling, enlightening music experience I've ever had. Uh, working with Quincy Jones is like working with the musical version of Yoda. Right. Uh, the wisdom is incredible. The uh, the integrity, the stuff that he tells you, his perspective, his knowledge, his acumen, his IQ, over, 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 over the top. Nothing compared. And I even told him, and I said it in Unsung or whatever, I said, working with Quincy was the best thing that ever happened. But in many ways, it messed me up because I couldn't go backwards. I now know what the ceiling is, and I can't work lower than this at this point. I don't know how... It's like being able to play Madison Square Garden and then somebody wants you to just come back and, you know, play the Hava Hut. Right, you know, right. Like, I, I don't know how to do that anymore. Because when I went to the garden, they had a banner and they had a light show and they had lasers and they had explosions and they had strings and I levitated and the band played my record and the audience, like, this whole place sang and I don't know how to go back to just doing a little small club anymore. It's the same kind of effect. Uh, you know, going that far with, with Quincy. And again, the Back on the Block project, the fact of meeting uh, those jazz icons and, you know, Ray Charles was enough. Oh, you know, wow. Quincy amazing. was already enough, but then you add Ray Charles into the equation and, and then Shaka Khan and then even Saida Garrett and then Tevin Campbell. like, And just uh, not only the mosaic, but the connectivity. And the thing that I got from that and the still the thing that I swear by in music, what's really missing and how we're doing a disservice to each other if we don't connect the generations, then we're kind of losing a lot, than, a lot more than we, we, we really could maximize in music because it makes sense to have the elders, uh, the hot kids of the day, and the newcomers. Mm-hmm. If you put that in an energy, you never, ever, ever lose just because you have the old and the, the past, present, and the future simultaneously, always. And I and I and you're right. I think I see that. You know, you see that with new new artists coming out when, um, you know, they you ask them who their influences were or are are, and they kind of like pick, you know, like you know, I mean, it's it's, it's not like not a bad thing, but they like pick like Jay Z or Nas, and nothing, you know, nothing has to do with R and B or nothing has to do with this even right. like you know old school music. Right, right. I mean, you know, and projects like that, especially if you put them at the level that they're supposed to be at, and I think the creativity would be heightened, but. I would love to see, you know, Shaka Khan with Alicia Keys and with a new girl like L. Uh, what's her name? L. Coming up. Just love to see it. I mean, that kind of stuff. I think is always, and it's extremely interesting. So, you know, why wouldn't there be a hip hop record with, you know, 
Kumo D, Kanye West, and some new up and coming guy that nobody's heard of. Is that gonna is that gonna happen? I mean, I'll push for it. I'll see what happens. I'll throw it out there all the time. You know, not once I start, uh, you know, moving the music again, I have no problem saying it. I actually will say it on record. You know, the next generation, the past generation, and this generation. What's the future of Kumo D? I'm uh, setting up to do my own talk show, which I was also, you know, a little let down that in in, in the unsung thing, they show clips from the talk show that I was doing. And they don't say it was a talk show, and they don't say I was hosting it, and they don't say anything about, you know, okay, so I'm getting ready to host my own talk show, setting up to go into pre-production and do it the way I want to do it. But I'm doing a talk show. It's called Behind the Rhyme. It's literally like an Inside the Actors Studio version of hip-hop, you know, Inside the Rapper Studio, if you will. Oh, nice. And it's basically the one-on-one kind of interview space and going in the levels and the layers that most pop interviews don't go. Because they're only talking about how's your record sales and what's your favorite record and what do you want the audience to remember you about? Like, it's real generic. And I think just from the conversations that I've had with Will Smith or Chuck D, we can go in at a level with comfort because you know I'm not looking for the dirt. I'm not looking for the, the drama angle, the integrity and the comfort that happens when your peers are talking as opposed to somebody that you're viewing as an outsider. Uh, it's just a totally different energy, and I think that uh, it's just the next step that hip-hop needs to go to, on top of which, you know, in that kind of environment, if I'm interviewing me or somebody like a Chuck is interviewing me, you don't ever overstate or underestimate the fact of what the actual battle was about or the fact that I went to college. Like, those things are never going to be left out in those kinds of environments. Right. Who would the first guest be on the, be on the rhyme? Uh, my personal favorite would always be Chuck D. I always, you know, again, I, uh, my closest friends uh, in the industry has always been Chuck D, Dougie Fresh. Uh, I would have to now throw Big Daddy Kane in there. But Chuck D, Dougie Fresh, uh, Big Daddy Kane, uh, KRS, those guys, man, uh, and, and Will Smith, those, those are, like, uh, as they say, my fave five, just in terms of we get on the phone, we have conversations, uh, very cool with Jalil from Houdini also. Uh, and we have real, real conversations and perspectives and, you know, uh, very self-reflective kind of thought, uh, thought-provoking uh, conversation. And I think, you know, just putting that, I, I've had conversations with Chuck D that I'm sure would get a million hits if we put it on YouTube or something. <laughs> so that kind of stuff, just taking it into the marketplace because of the layers and the depth and the insights that most people have no idea uh, is really, really in the equation. How much thought goes into some of the simplest stuff. Oh, actually, that made me think of an unsung. When uh, Everyone else that they talk to is alone, but Dougie Fresh is with you. Is, was, were you guys working on an album there, or was that...? I was in the studio. I was actually going to have them record me recording at Dougie's studio. Oh, okay. um, so, and I think... Uh, doing it with Dougie gave it a different flavor just because it loosened it up and it made it not the stereotypical kind of one-off, one-shot, one-shot. And to see us in there, I mean, because it turned into, be the, to me, it turned into the comic relief of the whole piece. Right. Uh, you know, saying, you know, VD was hot that summer. <laughs> I think the book should be burned. It was hysterical. And who put that in there? Teddy Riley, you know, it was hysterical. I mean, Dougie... What we do, and that's the other thing, too, that, that people don't get to see, which is the other reason I wanted to, I'm doing uh, Behind the Rhyme, is it's not always stuffy and sterile. 
there is a lot of levity in the wisdom. There's a lot of levity in the insight. So we're actually laughing and having a good time. I mean, you know, when I talk to Melly Mel, uh, you know, we might gripe about some stuff about the industry, but in many ways it's a lot of laughter. Mm-hmm. So I just think that that part of, of uh, not only uh, hip-hop, but just in terms of the artistry or the, or the intellect, is not really shown in the same light. And we get to this place, and, you know, now that I'm also doing television, it's like when you say information or education, they run. They think it's going to be sterile and stale and preachy, and they have no idea that information and education can still be entertaining because it's how you present it. It, Well, it's like like the the stigma of calling someone a conscious rapper or a political rapper. Right. It's, you know, everyone runs. Like, you tell someone, you, you, someone makes a political song and they do, like, I mean, quote-unquote, conscious song today, and you say, like, yeah, so how is it to be a conscious rapper? And they're like, well, you know, you call me a conscious rapper. That's not true. Right. You're like, well, but you just rhymed about some conscious <laughs> stuff. <laughs> what do you want me to tell you? Like, do you want me to right. play the song for you? Um, uh, and there's one more question, and I, I started to keep you. And I don't know if I'm looking too into this. Um, I was re-listening to a lot of your songs. And I, well, the, the um, I am Kumo D. Uh, this is the last thing that stands out. But so on I am Kumo D, you say uh, like I, I am the greatest, but not Ali. Not Ali, Kumo right. D. Uh-huh. But then other songs, and even in um, and 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 even in Rise and Shine, the video, um, other songs you kind of, and I could be totally looking into this and tell me if I am, um, kind of like give yourself a godlike and then also you you know do the uh, kind of the scene set the scene of Malcolm X uh is there something to that like you know telling everyone you know I'm 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 the greatest but not Ali but then not kind of quantifying you know when you compare yourself to like I guess Malcolm X or something uh well basically it's the esoteric answer is energy can't be destroyed Mm. And no matter how many of our greats, I'm named after Mahatma Gandhi. I, you know, again, I follow Bruce Lee and Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. Ali called himself the greatest. Something about that frequency hasn't appealed to me for a reason. So what I'm basically saying is that energy and that synergy uh, is a part of who I am. So, and it's a continuum. So basically, okay. it is a connectivity. So I said the greatest, but not Ali. Like basically saying, I'm letting him have what he's—that's his moniker. That's what he called himself. But you know, as far as hip hop, I'm saying, well, I'm the greatest, but not Ali. I'm Kumo D, and just keeping me Ali. And even in, uh, you know, on um, one of the other songs, which uh, you know, I'm getting hard or whatever. Ali and Frazier, I amaze you. I keep a lot of Ali analogies in my stuff or whatever. Uh, the Malcolm X thing at the Audubon. Uh, the Stop the Violence movement, just in terms of the party at the Audubon was where I first saw Grandmaster Flash, and that's where Malcolm X got killed, and Public Enemy did the video there, and you say, bam, they at the Audubon or whatever. Just that whole connectivity that I think is still here, it's like no matter how many times you kill it or attempt to kill it, energy can't be destroyed. It just transfers. It just takes on a different machination. So I'm absolutely basically trying to send the signal that I am connected to that energy. Better than most 
Martin Luther fan Joe They'll say, don't you know? Really, 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 don't you know? Cause I'm a real rap warrior, elite Astoria. I'll take on 104 of ya. Highest paid rappers if they put up the bucks. And I'll prove that they're all ducks. Cause I don't care nothing about your money and gold. Don't wanna hear about how many records you sold. Cause none of that don't mean nothing to me. Cause I'm the greatest, but not our elite. I'm cool, mom. What is, um, I get if you can, like, what is, can you spit your favorite verse by by you <laughs> of all time? Oh, wow. Of all time. I, that would definitely take thought because I don't, I don't really have a greatest verse. And actually, I don't have a greatest verse on a record that's been released. Uh, you know, one of my greatest verses is on a record called La La La, which I didn't release. And I'm actually going to put in probably an acapella of it on an album. That's awesome, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, as a matter of fact, it's in the movie. Ice-T used a little clip of it. The, oh, the other rap? Again, another, yeah, another two-hour interview where they used 16 bars. But, <laughs> so... Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. All of that's on the case. So that would be my, my, my greatest verse. Uh, and literally, if you want to take it from there, and I literally don't think you want me to do it live, but... <laughs> so... Some guys that use vocabulary as a weapon, almost just to brag or show so kind of what i do in that sense is like um braggadocious rhythmic vernacular designed to back you up i back it up with the spectacular yet just a fraction of my perpendicular with no particular linear structures i'm giving you ruptures as i erupt into your cerebellum i try to tell him i open a vortex your cerebral cortex sends a reaction that has him like a spasm upon further review you see it was lyrical orgasm how did it happen you can't even describe the vibe what was the essence of god presence felt inside bestowed upon you from the moment i dropped it on you i strike like a thief in the night and can't nobody warn you i'm on you i got that truly godlike metaphysical neolithical ask what you see in me lyrical deity hip-hop's pantheon one step beyond, so I stand beyond. Whatever Shaytan's fans beyond, I lights him up like neon, locks him down like Dion. Reclaim my title three times like Ollie when he beat Leon, and that's what I be on for the peon. Legendary uh, hip hop god Kumo D, uh, thank you so much for joining me today on uh, the Library with Tim Einekill and Andy Don't Stop with Chuck B. Thank you, bro. I'm not going, I'm gone. Up, up, up and away, and I'm on a higher plane with the brain with the flame. Feel the fire, desire the same. Knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Possessed by God, transferred to man in a script or a book or a scripture that looks like a biblical writing, inviting the hook of a song. Sing along with a strong subliminal message divesting all men from criminal acts of the devil. Revealed and revel, designed to decline the mind to a lower level. Read the Holy Quran or the Bible because it's liable to be a revival for the weak that see power. It'll bring infallible power. Now who wants up? Come get it. A battle is a test of wits and I'm with it. Heartbeats and torch and I lit it. Set the world on fire, I did it. Now that it feels good, I'm heating up. I feed off knowledge and can't eat enough. Cause knowledge is infinite, suckers ain't into it. Ignorance is bliss and they can't to it. They party and dance and they don't never glance at a book or look for their mind to advance. Caught in a rut, chasing butt, trying to get a dollar or a nun. Evil feeds off a source of apathy. Weak in the mind and of course you have to be less than a man. More like a thing. No knowledge of nothing. Knowledge is king. My knowledge comes from a spiritual force. Stronger than any earthly source of propaganda. Hype or slander. I don't believe the hype. I understand the media dictates the mind and rotates the way you think and think. Go pace, slow pace. Brains can't maintain. Ascertain. Insipid and name. Crash. Vain. Insane. Lame. 
tradition, all praise, fame, position, wanna be a star, drive a big car, live bourgeois and don't know who you are, lost in the sauce and praising the dollar, whether your faith is Christ or Allah, the knowledge of God will teach one thing, the dollar is moot, knowledge is king. Make a weak mind anorexic. You can't hang without slang, so eject it. I selected rhymes to wreck it to affect the effect of a rhyme that left it. Hanging like a pound that can't come down. But you're hanging in the brain, so your brain is hellbound. Lost and found by the serpent sound. What you don't know can't hurt, that's profound. Absurd, some better word. An ignorant fool is a real cool nerd. You pocket the fat with an empty head. Got a little bit of fame and a name, and your brain dead. You count your dollars, so you think you're in. You know how to count, but you don't know when. Ask history today, and it'll equal the future. Repetitive mistakes, because the brain ain't a future. You need knowledge to understand the concept of sacrifice. But we don't understand, so we have to fight for. Killing people we never saw before. Some don't even know what they're killing for. Following rulers instead of the prophets. The wicked can rule you, but knowledge can stop it. Souls can't be controlled, because it's a spiritual thing. But you got to have knowledge. Knowledge is king. Knowledge is king.